When I was in grade school, we lived in a small, a small suburb of Detroit, Michigan. It was called Ferndale, Michigan. Now, as a young boy, my brothers and I would actually uh, play across the street in the city park uh, with neighborhood kids uh, on, the, uh, on the swings and, and other things, and, and in the dirt, I will add. Uh, and uh, every day, about 5 p.m. during the week, my mom would call us in for dinner. That was the drill. And uh, we had supper uh, together as a family one, uh, you know, uh, one time a day, and it was five days a week. That was, that was the way things were in my family when I was a young boy. Now, we were not a particularly religious family, although we were Catholic, as I know I've mentioned before. But at the end of the day, we would sit together around the small dinner table in a, a blue-collar neighborhood outside Detroit. And before eating, one of, us boy, one of us boys would be engaged in actually saying grace before dinner. That's what we called it, saying grace. And it really was the, the habit of our blue-collar Catholic family. And it was usually my mother that called upon one of us because she was involved in the Catholic Church and she made sure that her three boys were as well. But we used to say a short, simple prayer before dinner and it went something like this. Bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts that we're about to receive from you. Amen. That was it. It was short and it was simple. And it's interesting what Catholics call saying grace is actually a prayer of blessing. Bless us, O Lord, with these thy gifts. But the word grace comes from the Latin word gratia, meaning thanks or gratitude for grace received. Some of you older folks in the audience may remember some of Norman Rockwell's famous paintings. Uh, they are endeared by many people even to this day. But one that was painted, and it actually was on the front of the Saturday Evening Post around Thanksgiving of 1951, was actually entitled Saying Grace. And it's a picture of a boy, a little Mennonite boy, about 12 years old, in a diner in New York City with his mother, bowing his head, saying grace or saying a prayer before a meal in a New York City diner with all of these locals looking on, you know, with cigarettes hanging out of their mouth, just in disbelief of this little boy praying in a restaurant before a meal. Saying grace usually referred to any prayer that was said before a meal. And so the practice of saying grace before the evening meal became a habit in the Horchak family when I was a small boy. You know, another practice that became routine as a young Catholic boy was memorizing prayers. And as I know what I've shared here locally before, when I went to catechism, which was the equivalent, I guess you could say, of Sabbath school for Catholic kids, and it was every week on Saturdays, in fact, um, you got graded on your prayers and whether or not you memorized them perfectly. So the FI students that we have amongst us that have to memorize scriptures for uh, FI, you're not alone. Uh, some of us beat you a long time ago. But we were memorizing prayers, which maybe isn't the, the best thing to do, but nonetheless, it was part of what we did. But one of the ones that I had to remember is one that all of you know quite well, and it's called the Lord's Prayer. And we know where that is in scripture, as a matter of fact. You know, for many people, uh, the recognition of what we refer to coming from Matthew chapter 6 of the Lord's Prayer is, is where people began praying over a meal simply because of a statement that Christ made in that, in that prayer. And of course, that comes from Jesus Christ's teaching of what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you'll turn to Matthew 6, turn to Matthew chapter 6. I want to read just a bit from Christ's instructions of that, in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 8, and he had, previous to this verse, had talked about how uh, some of the other Jews and some of the Pharisees treated their public display of righteousness. But when he came to verse 8, he was going to instruct his disciples on how to do it right. Of course, many of us in this room have been responsible for teaching others how to do it right, or we have been taught ourselves since coming into the church how to do it right. And Christ, of course, wanted his disciples and the church by extension to know how to do it right. Verse eight, he said, therefore do not be like them, he was referring to the Pharisees, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. There were times when I would read that and wonder, well, if that's true, then why pray? If it's all about informing the father of something that he may not know, and if he already does know, then why pray? That's, 
maybe for a different, uh, a different time, but it does intersect a bit with what I want to talk about today. In verse 9, here's where he begins to instruct. He said, in this manner, therefore, pray. And so we have long since recognized that the instruction that we're about to read was that fundamental, fundamentals from Jesus Christ as to how and, and, and what to pray about. And notice what he said, next verse. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. What did Christ mean by that statement? And I would caution, don't rush too quick to maybe think or say the obvious. What did he mean by that statement? Give us this day our daily bread. Was he admonishing us to make such a request? Was this our time to demand something from God each day that we prayed? Or was there some deeper thing or deeper meaning that Jesus was referring to that he expects us as his people to understand? Well, brethren, today I want to talk about seven words. These seven words give us this day our daily bread. And hopefully show the deeper meaning behind these words and why they are important for us in the church today. First, I want to comment on what may seem to be the obvious, because I've already referred to it, and that's praying over giving thanks for food. One of the most common applications of Christ's words in Matthew chapter 6 is the praying over a meal before we consume it or before we eat it. Most everyone here in the audience today has probably witnessed someone in the family praying over a meal, or if they haven't today yet, they will yet today, or, or did last night. It's a common part of our experience in the church. And we've done so since our children have been toddlers. You know, even today, sometimes when around the family table, we may have our, our children uh, ask them if they would be willing to give thanks or, or ask the blessing on the meal as we usually refer to it. Uh, and and our, often our grandkids, we've done that with our grandchildren as they've uh, gotten a, a little bit older. I, I won't forget when our, our little Zoe, a few years ago, when we were at our house for a meal, and, and I asked Zoe whether or not, you know, she wanted to pray. And, uh, of course, Zoe's always anxious to do something. Even if she doesn't know how to do it, she'll say, yes, let me, let me do that. But anyway, she, she actually prayed, and what she had to say was uh, thanking God for the food and her mom and dad. And yes, she included Grandma and Grandpa. We were happy to hear that. Um, but then at the end, she prayed in Moses' name. You know, so I'm, I'm smiling there as I'm listening to my granddaughter pray, and all of a sudden, you know, she pops the Moses word. And I thought, wait a minute here, we're going to have to address this, you know. But I didn't want to discourage her. And so I just kindly said, well, no, Zoe, it's in Jesus' name. And then she said, in Jesus' name. And then afterwards, she says, but what about Moses, you know? And so <laughs> that was a whole other discussion we had. Now, she's not made that mistake since, but, and, and don't, I did not correct her. I guess I corrected the situation, but I tried, tried to do it in a... Uh, in a, in a patient and, and, and loving way. But my point is we are experienced at that. All of us are. We've done it, we've heard it, we've listened to others pray over a meal. When I first started attending church as a young teenager in the early 1960s, my father then, because he was the one who came into the church, began to take the lead at the dinner table of asking a prayer before the meal. Previous to that, it was my mother asking one of us boys to. He wasn't really involved in the Catholic faith, although he was the one through whom we came into the church. So as you can understand, he felt it was his responsibility at the table to, uh, to do so. So he began taking the lead, and he started calling it a different thing, but was no longer saying grace. He called it asking the blessing uh, on, you know, on the meal. That was different for us. It wasn't terminology I was used to. And so the dinner setting of praying over the evening meal that went through a slight change in the Horchak household at that time in 1964. As the years went on on occasion, when I was at, uh, whether it was at our own house, if we had brethren over for uh, a potluck or we were at someone else's home or a group setting with the church, people, uh, you know, would pray over a meal. So I began to 
hear more prayers than I ever heard before uh, over meals, that's for certain. But occasionally I would hear some pretty interesting things come out of the mouth of individuals when they were praying over meal. For instance, people have asked God to remove all the impurities in the food. Well, you know, if you're at a guest's home and they've just, you know, they've just worked hard at serving you the most wonderful meal you can imagine, and then you're asked as a guest to pray over the meal, and you, you know, you just dutifully ask God to remove all the impurities from the food. You know, uh, it, uh, how does that make the cook feel? You know, I, I, I wondered about that, but I thought, okay, fair enough, you know, that's, uh, I'm not saying it happened all the time. I think many of you who've been in the church a while know that that, that wasn't always there. And, and I, I won't deny the fact that there are some settings Mr. Meeker can, uh, uh, you know, oblige this. There are some settings where that is important. So I'm not suggesting that, that never, that's never appropriate, but I just found it a bit strange at times when I heard it in America over what seemed to be a pretty clean meal, you know, that, uh, th that was mentioned. Um, but I want to begin talking about this by looking at a couple of examples of Jesus Christ. You know, we find in Scripture examples of Christ both giving thanks over food, which he clearly did. And as a matter of fact, Mr. Gutierrez actually mentioned uh, uh, an occasion, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote a, a, a sister verse to that one in a moment, of giving thanks over food and at times using a bit of a different Greek term, which is translated in English as blessing food. There are primarily two words that are used in the New Testament when someone is praying over a meal before they eat it. Uh, one, of, one of them is often translated blessed, and it's uh, euhariso, and uh, it, it's, it's where the word Eucharist comes from. It's euhariso, and it actually means gratitude or giving thanks. Then the other word that's used is eulogio, and that is actually to bless, to thank, or to speak well of, or to praise, so you, you, and, and is often translated thanks. Now, I bring this up simply because we find Christ being one that made this statement give us this day our daily bread, and we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment, but we find these examples of Jesus Christ thanking the Father for food before they ate. Um, now, the most stunning examples are those of when he actually performed the miracle of the fish and loaves uh, in Matthew 14. Again, this is a parallel verse to what uh, Mr. Gutierrez was mentioning, but in Matthew 14, verse 19, Matthew 14 and verse 19. We see in verse 19, then he, Jesus, commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed, and that's uh, eulogio, uh, and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave the multitudes. Now, one could uh, conclude, and I think rightly so, that part of what was being requested, I presume, was God blessing this small amount of food so that it would feed hundreds, which clearly happened. Um, then we find in Matthew 15, another example, Matthew 15, verse 36. In this case, he took seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks. And that is euhariso or euhariso, and that means he gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. Um, these aren't the only examples, but these are some of the primary ones of Christ giving thanks to the Father over food before he consumed it. But then we find another example in Acts 27. This is not of Jesus, but of the Apostle Paul. Now, in Acts chapter 27, of course, this was the occasion when they broke the fast. The Day of Atonement had, had passed. And uh, we find in verse 34 of Acts 27... Acts, 34, uh, Acts 27, verse 34, Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks, again, that's eucharizo, to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, they began to eat. So we see that at least these few examples point to the fact that before individuals ate, they gave thanks. It was about giving thanks for what they were about to partake of. Christ's example was one of gratitude and thankfulness. And I want to underscore that, gratitude and thankfulness for what that individual or what a group is about to partake of, for the food and provisions. And I think it's important to know that this is an example that Jesus Christ set. 
and one that we should consider when we even go back to considering his words that are embedded within the Lord's Prayer. Now, what about the term blessing, the food? You know, sometimes by using the term blessing, while biblically accurate, so there's nothing wrong with saying the blessing, I'm not suggesting that that's the case, but uh, sometimes I think in the mind of us, it can take on the let's remove the impurities from the food mode as opposed to giving thanks for the food, if you understand the distinction between the two. Uh, there's no doubt that both are important, but uh, um, I think we might lose the true context of eulogio, the, the Greek term, uh, because of our, the limitations of the English word bless, because sometimes we think, well, that is a matter of asking some special uh, um, uh, sanctification of something, uh, which is good, but uh, the core of what we find um, in the examples of Jesus Christ and even Paul is gratitude, thankfulness. So we must consider both, to thank God for this food as we acknowledge God as our provider. It's a vital truth that Jesus Christ wanted us to remember as his people. Now, now I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, this is not a sermon on prayers before meals, although we touched upon that. Very important. And all of this, I hope, links together. I want to switch gears and briefly talk about the fact that God gave us instructions on what to eat and what not to eat. When you talk about food, uh, it was a, it, there was a big link, uh, a powerful link between, Jesus, or between God the Father and his providing for his people. He wanted us to acknowledge where it came from, to understand that fact, and he gave us food laws, and we understand that quite well. We're not only to acknowledge God as our provider, but when it comes to food, God actually gave his people instruction on what foods were to be eaten and what foods were not to be eaten. I don't know if any of you ever wondered why God did that. I mean, he wasn't forced into having clean and unclean meats or, uh, or, or even other plants, because we know that there are some plants that aren't fit for food. Uh, those maybe aren't always detailed in scripture in the same way that, the, uh, you know, that animals were, but why did God create it that way? Why didn't he just create them all to eat? Um, he didn't have to do it the way he did. And I think all of us know that God does nothing in vain, that there's, there's a reason for all of it. Of course, some would have us believe that the reason he gave the food laws was it was just, it, it was all a, a matter of uh, 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 ritual uh, and under the old covenant, and it has no, no purpose or meaning beyond that. Well, that's not true. We know that that's not true, but what is the purpose behind it? Why was there a distinction there? Why was there? I think it's a fair question. Leviticus 11, verse 1, and of course we know that the parallel verse in Deuteronomy 14 or verses uh, gives similar instruction. Leviticus 11, verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, speak to the children of Israel, saying, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And so he proceeded to give instruction. And if you're going to eat animal flesh, these are the ones that you can eat from. And there were others that they were not to eat from. Now, God could have created all animal flesh good for food. He could have done that. It would have made life a whole lot easier on a lot of people. But he didn't do that. He could have created all plants good for food. But he didn't do that. Yes, I think we all know that God does want us to learn to obey him. But I don't believe that God's purpose for establishing food laws was just so that he could get a bit of a rise out of people doing what he asked them to do. God always has a purpose, a deeper purpose behind what he, what the direction he gives, the instructions he gives to his people. You know, we, we, uh, I think that he wants us to learn to discern, to discriminate between those things that are fit and giving the instructions and those that are not, to recognize that there are some things that are profitable to consume, and even there the volume and all is another topic, but, and, and those that aren't. It's, uh, and so, unless you were born into the church, and a good number of you in this audience were, uh, some of us had to learn to discern. Uh, you know, bacon took on different meaning after we came into the church. Uh, it really did. 
And I think God wants us to draw a distinction between what we put in our mouth and in our stomach. Now, um, one can debate and talk about all of the, all of the uh, physiological reasons why pork is bad for you and, and at least uh, lean beef in, in, in moderation is good for you and, you know, and, and, and certain fish because the omega-3s are good and certain other. You, you can get all of that information. We've published some of it and, and it's, it's valid. I'm not suggesting it's not. But there's a, I believe there's a deeper reason behind all of this in terms of what we put in. If you don't eat food and if I don't eat food, we die eventually. And of course, there were times in my life when I was about a 12-year-old boy when I thought I was going to die if I didn't have one meal because, uh, you know, you, you, food is an important part of life, to be sure. When I was 14 years old, so this is a couple of years after I came into the church, I was working as a busboy in a restaurant outside Detroit. The name of the restaurant was Biff's, Biff's Hamburgers, and uh, uh, they don't exist anymore. It was a chain. It wasn't like McDonald's. It was, it was an upgrade from McDonald's. You could actually sit down inside. Um, it was a little more expensive. Uh, they served a few other things. Uh, it kind of a cross between a, a Waffle House and a, you know, and a Denny's, but this was back in the uh, mid-1960s. So I worked as a busboy, and, and sometimes I had to do prep work for food, which means basically you're doing all the, 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 you boil a big pot of potatoes so that they can make fresh hash browns. And I also had to make shrimp cocktail sauce. You know, and I saw these pink little shrimps, and I, and I always wondered, you know what, People just would suck them and love them, you know, dip them in that sauce. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm talking to a lot of people who've never had shrimp, of course. But, but I, was, I was tempted by it. And so one, day, one evening I asked the, uh, of course, look, my boss didn't know about food laws. So I said, I wonder if I could, they were expensive, at least even by our standards back then. A couple of shrimp, yeah, go ahead, you know. And so I, I whipped up the sauce. And by the way, how many here know how to make shrimp cocktail sauce? Surely there's someone here, dear. Okay, George, you would. <laughs> no, basically uh, ketchup and uh, horseradish. I mean, that's fundamentally it. So some of you have probably had that. You've dipped other things in it. But so I got I got uh, the pinkest little shrimps I could, and I I dipped them in and and ate them and and gagged. And and at age fourteen, uh, you know, I I realized in short order, at least at that point in time, I concluded why God didn't want us eating those water bugs, which is what I've come to call them since then. And when you think about shrimp, and when you think about lobster, they really are crawdads, and they're water bugs. And, and that's what, you know, I, it, it, I felt bad about it, not, real, not as bad as I should have felt, but I, I, I learned in, in a sense that, uh, you know, it, it really doesn't pay to do that, but it would be a long time after that before I came to understand that there was something deeper behind why God created animals in such a way that some were good for food and some were not. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is a more general statement, admittedly, but we find here in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? So here we get back to that basic fundamental question, what does God really want of you, Israel? And we know that much of their existence in the years that followed even the, the 40 years of wandering was, uh, was the ups and downs of them attempting to obey God at times and then failing miserably. But what does God expect of you or require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and notice this in verse 13. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today. Why? For your good. For your good. Which included, by the way, the food laws. Do we have faith that God knows what he's talking about? And I would ask that of all the instruction he gives, but in particular, this, this particular one, which sometimes people have struggled with. Well, you know, what's spiritual about eating pork or, or, or not? And I would submit uh, on, on a physical plane, little of nothing. But there's, there's a deeper principle behind all of it, not the least of which is obedience, but do we have faith that God knows what he's talking about? Leads to the next point. Three of five, by the way, so that you're counting. Fasting. In this particular case, no food. 
no food, eating no food or drink, um, has deep spiritual value. The scripture's pretty clear about that. You notice how a lot of this is, surrounds the subject of food or provisions. It's significant that actually doing without food is something that God tells us can benefit his children. Matthew chapter 4, probably the best example in all of Scripture of fasting. After Christ's 40-day fast, I, I, again, I cannot imagine uh, what that was like. And, uh, you know, two or three days is one thing, but 40, it's just unfathomable. But to do without food and drink. And Christ did that for a purpose. We know that Jesus Christ encountered Satan the devil. And it really what ensued was a, it, there's not much there in Matthew 4. We'll read a little bit from it. But uh, it had to be a fascinating dialogue and encounter that took place. You know, the Son of God, destitute in terms of being hungered without food, and we find the, 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 you know, the, uh, the ruler of the earth, at least in a temporal sense, Satan, doing all he could to get him to succumb to what he was offering to him. Uh, as is the case in so many instances of the scripture, this is one of those areas that I have to wonder what else might have been said or thought or felt between those two when this was going on. Satan was tempting Christ to take stones and to make what out of them? Food, bread. We know that Christ was hungry. We know that he had the capability and the power to do it. But Christ responded with a profound truth that relates to the topic that I'm talking about today, and one that no doubt he stated for the benefit of us. A lesson to be learned and remembered every time we fast doing without food and water, that is, amongst other things, supposed to humble us. I say supposed to because I, I think we can all recognize that just because you fast doesn't mean that automatically spiritual humility envelops you. I mean, I, I think we understand that fasting of and by itself doesn't make you humble. If we use that tool in the way that God intended it to be used and we focus on what he would hope that we would, as you read in Isaiah 58 and other places, then surely that would be a result of it. But it doesn't just automatically happen because we fast. But when we do, and if we do it with purpose, it can be a humbling reminder of the dependence that we have upon God for everything. The dependence we have on God for everything. Reminder of what Christ told Satan in verse 3 of Matthew 4, and this is significant. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you be the Son of God, then command these stones be made bread. Command these stones be made into something that you can consume and you can eat and get the sustenance that you need and you so desire. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He drew a connection between the apparent need for food that Satan felt that Christ had at a weak moment and what people really need to live. It's not just the physical food that we have in so many words, but there is a spiritual food that is of absolute necessity for a human being to be thoroughly nourished in the way that God would have them be. Now, I'm adding a bit more to the words that Christ did, but clearly he's quoting from Deuteronomy and he is making the point. It's not by physical food alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's a deeper spiritual connection between physical food that we eat and spiritual food that we should make a regular diet of. You know, hungering for physical food, not a hard thing to come by. I had to go to the doctor this week for an annual physical, and uh, I usually make arrangements to go early in the morning, first thing, because they make you fast overnight because they're gonna take lab's blood, you know, and, they, and you're not supposed to eat or drink anything, or at least uh, not, not eat any food. 
Well, as it turned out, mine got switched to late in the afternoon, so what started off as a fast the night before, at 6 or 7 o'clock, ended up going to 4 o'clock the next afternoon, which no big deal, but as he's, uh, he's got the stethoscope out and, you know, they're, they're checking here, and then as he checks my abdomen, he says, oh, you're hungry, <laughs> you know? because I, my tummy was talking to him. I mean, I couldn't hear it, but I knew it was, I'm sure, I said, yeah, I'm hungry. He said, you're fasting. I said, of course, you know, and, uh, that, and I didn't make it happen. Uh, I was hungry. Uh, my body clock was telling me it was long overdue time to eat. And uh, you, you, you know how that works. We've all had it happen. Um, many of you probably got together with family or friends, or maybe it was just your immediate family on the 4th of July. And you may have had a cookout. We had some brethren over and had a nice time. We cooked some burgers and some smoked chicken. And, and you know, about late afternoon when we were about ready to serve, everyone was kind of ready. And I, they, they were hungry. So was I. And, uh, and we enjoyed uh, the meal together. And uh, so we understand how that works. However, hungering after spiritual food is a bit different, isn't it? It's a bit different. You know, the scripture even indicates that you can do without spiritual food for a while or a person can be in a situation. You know, the scripture talks about a famine of the hearing of the word. But you can physically live on without the word, physically. And it's, we are capable as human beings of physically living without the Word of God. I mean, for a while, we can. We live, we're living in a world that's doing that. And, and, and we don't automatically hunger and thirst after the righteousness, which is really defined by God's Word. We have to seek it and pursue it. It's a, there's a personal choice involved in you and I hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In Matthew 5 and verse 6, we know that this is just the previous chapter of the Lord's Prayer where Christ goes through what are called the Beatitudes and he makes one statement here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, a point in time in your life when you can't get enough of that food. Now, I suspect many of you in the room had periods of time and maybe some of you are going through that right now. You can't study enough or read God's word enough, or you, you want to talk to God as much as time and circumstances allow you to. So I'm not suggesting no one here has that, but it is, it's not the same as your body clock telling you it's time for lunch or for dinner. And that's why Christ said what he did, blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, because they shall be filled. They're going to eat. They're going to be fed. God would see to it. Which leads to the next facet of this, and that's spiritual food is essential. You know, the need for food to sustain life is central to the topic that I'm talking about today, to Christ instructing us to ask God to give us this day our daily bread, both physical and spiritual. The need for food, the provision, the providing of food, and the type of food are all central to what we're talking about today. There's a key spiritual principle that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you would turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. So we find here Israel being, uh, being instructed as to why they were going through what they did. Verse 3, Deuteronomy 8. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. For what purpose? That he might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. We just heard Christ quoting this. But he was quoting the instance where Israel was being told why it was that God allowed them to hunger and then miraculously provided food there was a lesson to be learned. You know, there's much to this statement in, uh, in Deuteronomy 8. It says he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna, which itself was a miracle. To make you know that there was a purpose behind this. That man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God of which we know Jesus Christ, being the bread of life, is central. 
We know that at that time, they didn't fully grasp uh, all of the ramifications of the coming Messiah. I mean, they knew of the Messiah. They, we know what, uh, what the prophet Isaiah prophesied about, about such. And, but, but in terms of how all of this would function, uh, being that most of ancient Israel were unconverted, it took time before God's people really were able to connect those dots. And that was true even in the early church with the original apostles. But we find in John 6, John chapter 6, at the very least, many of us read this the night of the Passover or sections of it, but in John chapter 6, we know that Jesus answered them, speaking of the same circumstance, and he said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. We read about the loaves and the fishes. In other words, I gave you physical food, and you human, I mean, you didn't say this, but, but you, you get the picture. You're physical, you're hungry, you wanted food, it was good food. I provided that food for you. You were impressed by that. You want food, you need food, and of course we all do. Most all of us in this room don't live in a situation where we are wondering where our next meal will come from. And because of that, sometimes we aren't able to relate uh, to some of these uh, examples in the same way that, that others may. But he noticed in verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now Christ was revealing a deeper meaning to his presence, not only in their life, but, but, but ultimately for the whole world. You remember, and it was in John's account, John 3 and verse 16, you know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a more detailed description of how and why that's the case. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. You know, they thought it was an actual bread, a physical piece of uh, food that they were going to eat that would ensure eternal life. And he said to them, I, I am the bread of life. He who comes down, or he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the word. We know that. We are to live by every word of God. We should, as God's people, aspire to have the mind of Jesus Christ as the Apostle Paul instructed in Philippians chapter 2. And that is the bread, the food that Christ said that endures forever. A final point I want to make, and, and it's one I believe that God's people should be on guard about to prevent a mindset of needing nothing at a time such as this. The last point is the blindness of abundance. The blindness of abundance. I want to turn to Psalm 78. And as you're turning there, please be assured we're not going to read through the entire chapter. <laughs> if you know the Psalms, that would take a while. And uh, the 78th Psalm, of course, is a very unique Psalm in that it is a very instructive Psalm and one that uh, Israel uh, was to learn from as it was read because we believe that the point of Psalm 78 is for God's servants in that particular case it was Israel when the Psalms were were initially written to learn from the mistakes of their forefathers that's what Psalm 78 is all about the entire chapter and there's a lot there it shows that God was faithful and there were times when Israel rebelled despite his faithfulness to them, despite him providing for them. It shows that they didn't believe God could provide the table in the wilderness that they wanted. All went back to food. Food was so important. And unless they could get to eat what they wanted to eat, they weren't impressed. Psalm 78, verse 17. Psalm 78, verse 17. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. It's interesting, it says that the Israelites were, were testing God. 
They, they wanted what they wanted on the terms that they wanted it. As it says in verse 19, yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Can he really do this? Can he really take care of us? Do we really believe that? You know, today in our Western culture, many people suffer, not all, but many do, from the blindness of abundance. The blindness of abundance. What is the blindness of abundance? Well, let me give you a bit of a working definition. When you are blessed with abundance, whether it be a nice home, water, food, you may take that abundance for granted. You may see no need to place high value on having a place to live, on food or water, because when you have abundance, you can be blind to where it came from and what its true value really is. You know, one of God's names is Jehovah Yireh, which means God will provide. There are many ways that God is defined and described in the scripture. He clearly was the one that provided. You know, we human beings default to a lot of things uh, when it comes to looking to God or praying. And I think all of us would agree that we, we humans, I'm not necessarily saying all of us would do this, although we're all capable of it. We pray and ask God and plead with God when we are in need. We forget and ignore sometimes when we have it all. We pray and ask and plead when we are in need, and sometimes we forget and ignore when we have it all. Now I'm going to talk about an old movie. It's an older movie than Mr. Burnett might mention. He usually mentions movies from the 70s and 80s. I'm going to mention one from the 60s. And some of you may remember this. It was called Shenandoah. Anybody remember that? Jimmy Stewart starred in it. And he was a father uh, of, a, of a farm in northern Virginia uh, during the Civil War. His name was Charlie Anderson. And he was a widower. And he had a large family. He had a daughter and several sons. And uh, uh, as I said, he had six sons. And uh, he considered himself a God-fearing man, but didn't give God credit for much of anything. How many of you saw the movie Shenandoah? Unfortunately, there's only 12 of you in this room that are going to get this. So. <laughs> so if you don't have anything to do after sundown tonight, go to Netflix and rent Shenandoah. It's worth it to see the scene that I'm about to describe at the beginning of the movie, I may add, so you don't have to watch the whole movie. But uh, Jimmy Stewart, if you know who he is, I won't ask how many people know who Jimmy Stewart is. I if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, then you know who Jimmy Stewart is. But as they sit around the dinner table at the beginning of the movie to show his independence, uh, here's what Jimmy Stewart had to say with his whole family sitting around a table full of food. They'd just come in from the fields to work. Again, this is the setting at the beginning of the movie, Shenandoah. And he said, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for the food we're about to eat. Amen. <laughs> and I didn't do it justice. You'd have to listen to Jimmy Stewart say what he did around the table. You kind of get the picture. And uh, I've never forgotten that. I've seen the movie a number of times over the years. I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy 8 again, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because we find here in Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 11, a very thought-provoking and timely reminder for all of us to consider. Now, the, this was an admonition that God gave to Israel. Um, I've often wondered just how wealthy could the Israelites have been at certain points in time in their history. You know, it, um, I know that there was some relative wealth, but you find that was typically with the leadership, if at all, and we don't know how much of that translated into the average person who was one of the, part of the 12 tribes. So I, I read through Deuteronomy 8, and I often conclude that the primary focus went beyond that generation of what God was trying to help us as his people to understand. Remember what we 
know that Psalm 78 is about it, that we could learn from our forefathers' mistakes. Verse 11, beware that you forget not the Lord your God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command you this day. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein there were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought you forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers knew not, that he might humble you, that he might prove you, to do you good in the latter end. But notice verse 17. And you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. I worked for it. I worked dog bone hard in the field. But thanks just the same. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant that he swore unto your fathers as it is this day. You know, we find this warning, because really, you could really call it nothing other than that, this warning to ancient Israel. We find a similar admonition to the future church, in fact. The church, I would at least guess, of the 21st century and before, through the Apostle John, Jesus Christ spoke to the church in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Now, if you turn to Revelation 2 and 3, uh, I realize that uh, these two chapters are a bit of a question for some people. They wonder, well, what's the, you know, why is it that the, these seven churches exist? And what are the different ways you could look at that? Our, our, uh, our literature, in, ter- in terms of stating our position, on very clear and helpful on the multifaceted way that, that we can understand uh, the instructions and the comments that are made to the seven churches here in Revelation 2 and 3. I think the relevance of these seven messages throughout history becomes obvious with the closing of the, uh, uh, the message to each of the seven churches because we know there's a common closing, which is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A repetition of that would cause us to conclude that this is a message for us today a message for us today. With that in mind, let us read these words in Revelation chapter 3 that Christ spoke of the church of Laodicea. Revelation 3, verse 15. I know your works, Christ said, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Pretty sobering statement. Because you say I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And know you not that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It really is a classic case of the blindness of abundance, physically and spiritually. Now that's not new to any of us. As we end, brethren, I want to read an account that I think uh, helps to illustrate just how powerful the promise of and the need for food and provision and being taken care of really is to us human beings. Especially when times are tough. In reading this, I think we can be reminded of the significance and the value of being taken care of. After the Korean War ended, South Korea was left with a large number of children who had been orphaned by the war. After experiencing the fright of abandonment, many of these children were rescued and sent to refugee camps where they received food and shelter. Yet even in the presence of good care and meals during the day, these abandoned children were restless and anxious at night and had difficulty sleeping. Those caring for the children soon discovered that the kids had tremendous anxiety about whether they would have food the next day. As a result, the relief workers decided that each night when the children were put to bed, the nurses 
there would place a single piece of bread in each child's hand to clutch at their breast when they went to sleep at night. The bread wasn't intended to be eaten. It was simply intended to be held by the children as they went to sleep. It was security for them, assuring them that there would be provision for their daily needs. If they woke up frightened at night, the bread seemed to remind them, I ate today, I'll eat again tomorrow. Now, how mindful are all of us in this room of the provisions that we all enjoy and have? Who provides them? And to whom do we look to each and every day for the things we have, for our food, for our raiment and clothing, for our shelter? Now, brethren, this wasn't intended to be a message about clean and unclean meats. It isn't a sermon about simply remembering to only thank God at a meal. Uh, it's a message about a simple statement by Jesus Christ. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a reminder that each and every day recognizing our dependence upon God, acknowledging every day who our provider is, recognizing every day where the food that we have, the home that we live in, and the provisions we have where they come from. Realizing every day not only the physical food that we have, but the spiritual food that we have access to. As this world grows ever more dark, and it will, as the abundance of modern Babylon is flaunted ever more before our eyes, and it is, let us not take our eyes off God, the great provider. And rather than holding a piece of bread in our bosom as we lie down to sleep, let us lay hold and clutch to the true bread of life with believing faith that our God will take care of his people and will provide our every need.